Please stand for the reading of God's word. Exodus 32, 1 through 35. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods for who, who shall go before us. As for this, Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have sent seen this people and behold it is a stiff-necked people now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and i may consume them in order that i may make a great nation of you but moses implored the lord his god and said O lord why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of egypt with a great power and with a mighty hand Why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants to whom you swore by your own self, and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain, and with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back, they were written. The tablet were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with the fire and ground it into powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? And Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people, that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go go before us. As for this, Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. 
And all the sons of Levi gathered around him, and he said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from the gate from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion with his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses. And that day about three thousand men of the people fell. And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. The next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. But the Lord said to Moses, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. But now go, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, my angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. Then the Lord sent a plague on the people, because they made the calf, the one that Aaron made. This is the word of God. Good morning, family of God. So here we are at the foot of Mount Sinai. I want you to remember that the mountain is on fire. It's burning, but not being consumed. Thick black smoke covers the mountain. Somewhere in the massive fire is Moses. He's been up there over a month. No one's heard from him. No one's seen him. No one dares get close to the mountain because God has already said, if you even touch the mountain, you're going to die. Every night you go to bed with a blazing mountain in front of you. Every morning you get up, collect your manna, and you see a smoky, cloudy mountain in front of you. Day after day passes, after day after day after day, week after week after week after week passes, and a little over a month later, the leaders get together and they come to Aaron and they say, come on, make us gods who will go before us. Make us gods who will go before us, who will protect us, who will provide for us who we can see. Moses brought us out of Egypt and left us here, and we don't know where he is. Now, at this point in the story, Aaron has a choice. He can bow to God and lead with conviction on the promises of God, or he can bow to the crowd and break the covenant. And rather than pointing out the mountain, he says, bring me your gold. Go get all the gold earrings that you have. Take it from your spouse. Take it from your sons. Take it from your daughters. 
Then Aaron takes a tool for molding metal and he carefully, tediously makes the gold into the form of a calf. The people get excited and they shout, these are the gods that brought us up out of Egypt. And Aaron takes some stones and builds an altar at the foot of the blazing mountain in front of the golden calf. He makes a declaration. He says, tomorrow is a feast day to Yahweh, the Lord. You can hear Aaron trying to make what is blasphemous sound like holiness. The people go to bed in full view of a burning mountain and they get up, probably collect some more manna and then start sacrificing animals to a golden calf. They celebrate. They feast. They have an orgy. It's likely what's meant in verse six when it says they rose up to play. And God is blasphemed. Now, we in 21st century Oklahoma City have a tendency to, for this to be foreign to us. Our, our struggle, our temptation may not be if today we're going to take off our jewelry and take it down to the smelter, get a calf made and bow down to it. But this text is especially relevant for us today because it exposes our hearts. I want you to hear what, what Stephen says about this incident in Acts chapter 7. Speaking of Moses, beginning in verse 28, he says this. He says, sorry, verse 38. He says, this is the one, talking about Moses, this is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us the living word our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside and in their hearts they turned to Egypt saying to Aaron make for us gods who will go before us as for this Moses who led us out from the land of Egypt we don't know what would become of him and they made a calf in those days and offered a sacrifice to the idol and were rejoicing in the work of their hands. Now, Stephen is saying that the main temptation for the people of Israel was not whether they would bow down to a statue or not. The main temptation for them is, is whether or not they would turn in their hearts back to Egypt. And subsequently, to rejoice in the work of their hands, as opposed to the work of God's. The people had left Egypt, but Egypt was still in their hearts. In their hearts, they wanted the security that Egypt provided. In their hearts, they wanted the purpose that Egypt provided. In their hearts, they wanted the predictability that Egypt provided. Now, what is so destructive in these longings is that when they were in Egypt, that wasn't their experience at all. They weren't secure in Egypt. On a whim, Pharaoh decided to kill all their baby boys. 
They didn't have purpose in Egypt. They were cogs in a wheel to build monumental cemeteries to their dead kings. They didn't have predictability in Egypt. One day they make bricks with straw. The next day they make bricks without straw because Pharaoh didn't want them to. They are self-deceived because Egypt is still in their hearts. Now, what does that have to do with us? If God, by his grace, has, has opened your eyes to see that life is all about Jesus. When we say, say it, it's all about Jesus. Now, if you can say that from your heart, that didn't come from you. That was a gift. If, if you, by God's grace, have recognized that your life doesn't always reflect the, the, the reality that life is all about Jesus, if, if you, by God's grace, have recognized that you can't fix your life to make it all about Jesus, if, if you, by God's grace, recognize that continuing to live for yourself will only take you further and further away from God, if you, by God's grace, have believed that God saw you in your incapacity and sent his son Jesus to die to pay the penalty for your rebellion and to rise from the dead, giving you the hope of new life centered on Jesus, if you, by God's grace, have entrusted your life to Jesus and forsaken everything else, that's grace. That's grace. But giving over lordship of our lives is both an event and a process. Why do I say that? Paul in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14 says this. He's talking about those who are in Christ and he says, He, God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We no longer live under the rule of sin and Satan. And if you're here and you haven't trusted in Jesus, all you have to do is is cry out and say, God, Forgive me. I want you to be my Lord. I want you to be my boss. I want you to have the rightful place in my life. And like that, he transfers you from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. That's grace. In that way, lordship is an event. But it's also a process. Peter in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We grow to allow him to be Lord in every area of our lives. Whatever rules our hearts, rules our lives. Every time we look to something besides God for our identity, our purpose, our direction, we are turning away from Jesus' lordship and turning back to Egypt. When we look to money for security, when we look to some relationship for full acceptance, when we look to achievements for our reputation, when we look to our own possessions for our sense of identity, we are turning away from Jesus' lordship and back to Egypt. And we all have a tendency to turn back to Egypt. And the Bible has a word for that. He calls it idolatry. Idolatry. But what I'm excited about is that God doesn't leave us there. There is hope even for idolaters. 
And what I'm excited to share with you today is that there is a solution to our idolatry. There is a solution to our idolatry. I want to give you a moment to bow your heads with me. And I want you just to ask the Lord to speak to you today, to point out specific idols in your own life, and then to smash them and give you the courage to face them and to bring them under the Lordship of Jesus. And then I'll close this in a word of prayer. Jesus, Jesus, precious Jesus, you are Lord. You are the one who we rightfully bow to. Because yoking up with you is better by far. Thank you for your redemption that you offer. Thank you for the grace that you offer. Help us today to hear your word. Give me clarity of of thought. Help me to say only what you want me to say. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Today's text teaches us about the image of idolatry. It teaches us about the cost of idolatry, and it teaches us about the solution to idolatry. Now, the first thing we see in our passage today is the image of idolatry. The main characteristic of the idolatrous people that we we find this in verse nine. If you look with me in your text, it says, and the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people and behold, it is a stiff necked people, stiff necked. Characteristic of idolatry, stiff net. Now, there's a word picture. I know some of y'all are urban, so let me unpack this for you. You can think about this with regard to oxen. You can think about this with regard to, to horses. I'm going to do horses. I didn't work a whole lot with oxen, but I've done a little bit with horses. Get an amen from my aunt. Come on. If you're working with a horse, you take, and let's say you want to ride this horse, or at least lead this horse, you're going to take a bridle. The bridle goes around the face of the horse. And you're going you're gonna to let that, that horse sniff the bridle to get comfortable with you. I'm just going to try and put it on because they're going to maybe jump at you. I want them to be comfortable with you. I want them to gain some trust. You're going to take that bridle. You're going to wrap it over their ears. You're going to buckle it on the bottom. You're going to attach a lead rope to it. And then ideally what happens then is you begin to lead the horse around the corral. And when you lead the horse around the corral, if you go to the left, ideally that horse is going to go to the left. If you lead that horse to the right, ideally that horse is going to go to the right. And if you pull back on that horse, ideally they're going to stop. But what a stiff-necked horse does is not what you anticipate. If you lead to the left, that horse stays right where it is. If you lead to the right, the horse stays right where it is. If you pull back, they may even jump at you. They even kick you in the behind. Now this is a stiff-necked Horse. Now, if you don't quite mix with that analogy, I want you to think about driving a car. Power steering fluid is a great thing. But when you lose it on the highway, you better know how to turn. You know what stiff neck feels like. And this is what idolatry feels like. Idolatry feels like being, being hard to turn one way or the other. And God refers to these people as stiff-necked in verse 9. He uses that word to describe the people of Israel. 
See, God had told them the direction he wanted them to go, and they had even agreed to go there. If we were to go back in time, we go back to Exodus chapter 19, verse 19, in which we hear the people hearing the voice of God. We fast forward to Exodus chapter 24, verse 3, where Moses gives the commandments of God to the people. And that would include the first two commandments. You shall have no other gods before me and do not make for yourself any graven image of anything in the heaven above, on the earth beneath, or in the sea below. And then if we were to go a little bit more to chapter 20, verse 23, we would hear God say to Moses and Moses say to the people, you shall not make gods of silver to be with me, nor shall you make for yourselves gods of gold. Don't do it. Don't do it. They have received the word of God. They know which way to go. And three times they promise to do it. In Exodus 19, verse 8, all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We're going to do it. Exodus 24, verse 3. All the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. We're going to do it. Exodus 24, verse 7. The people said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. They promised to keep the word of the Lord, to be obedient to what God has spoken. But then, like a stubborn horse, they directly violate the command of God. They buck against the yoke. They buck against the bridle. Now, how do they do this? I want to unpack this a little bit because I think this is where we get to the heart of idolatry. There's five ways that I see that the people of Israel turn their hearts back to Egypt. The way they they buck against God's leadership. And there also happen to be five ways that we have a tendency to turn our hearts away from God. And God wants to make us aware of these because he made us for worship of one. And we worship anything else. It's not going to bring true satisfaction, true joy, true life. God wants to smash our idols. First, the people become impatient with God's timing. Look at verse 1. Impatient with God's timing. Verse 1 of our text. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron. Now, Moses was delayed, so they say. Thirty-nine days have passed since Moses went up on the mountain. That's five weeks, a little more than a month. And because of his delay, they say at the end of verse 1, we do not know what has become of him. Now, this is somewhat surprising for two reasons. One, God's timing has always been perfect. And two, they really do know where Moses is. You remember, when the people were trapped between the Red Sea and the, the, the Pharaoh's army, at just the right time, the pillar of cloud went from before the people to behind the people to block the Egyptian army. While that happened at just the right time, the east wind began to blow and split the sea apart. People walked through on dry ground. And then at just the right time, when Egypt began to follow them, God brought the waves crashing down upon them, judging the enemies of his people. At just the right time, when the people were hungry, God brought manna from heaven. At just the right time, When God's people were thirsty, he brought water from a stinking rock. At just the right time, when Amalek came to attack God's people, Joshua overwhelmed them by the sword. At just the right time, God has always met his people at just the right time. Now, now, I don't want to point anybody out, so I'm not going to do this too much or too long. But how many of us were impatient with God's timing last week? Don't raise your hand. It could have been a better question. 
the better question is, how many of us have needed to pay a light bill and at just the right time got brought in the money? How many of us have needed to pay your tuition and at just the right time got brought in the money? How many of you have, have known somebody who needed medical care, but they didn't know it at just the right time they went to the doctor and they found out they weren't as well as they thought they were? How many of us were praying and chasing that special someone only to find out at just the right time they weren't as special as we thought. In small ways, all the time, we see that God's timing is perfect. That means that if God is delaying, we can trust that he has a purpose for the delay. He has a reason for the delay. We can trust him. Now, secondly, we know where Moses is. The mountain is still burning. If we look up, we can see the glory of God. Now, this might be where we need community. Because sometimes we can get discouraged because we forget about the glory. I may be laboring for a long time in a place and not see any fruit. But if I talk to my friend, I might, know, or I might, I might remember that, that Alex gave his heart to Jesus last week at Brock Creek. I may be laboring in my marriage and not seeing a whole lot of fruit. And then I look at, at that couple that, that could have gotten divorced and didn't, and they're flourishing. I can see the glory of God. I may be waiting on that special someone. A bunch of specials have, have come by and been on sale and left. I'll let you figure out that analogy. I don't know if I know what that means. And yet I can remember that at just the right time, God's been a friend to me and closer than a brother. See, if we, we look around and we encourage each other, we can remember that the glory of God is on display all the time, all of creation. Every sunrise is a brand new painting of God's goodness, manifestation of his glory. So we can become impatient with God's timing. That's what people did. But not only that, what we see in these people is they are fearful of God's abandonment. And I want you to listen up with this, friends, because this, is, this can go deep. Look at the first thing that people say to Aaron when they gather around him. They say, up, make us gods who shall go before us. Everyone say, who shall go? Now, the answer to that question is, is easy. God has already promised to go before his people. But the people, sounds like, are fearful that in the wilderness they're going to be left unprotected. Again, this concern seems to be unfounded considering what we've seen so far in Exodus. God has gone before them by a pillar of, of, of cloud in the day and a pillar of fire at night. God has proven he will not leave them alone. In chapter 23, verse 23, he promised his angel would go before them. But their frantic fear may be familiar to some of us. Jesus came to earth as Emmanuel, God with us. And before he ascended, he said, I will be with you always to the end of the age. He has given us his spirit to abide in us and guide us into his truth. We have experienced his nearness and protection, yet we sometimes fear that we need something else to keep us protected. We may need something else to keep us secure. We've already mentioned how money can fill that, how possessions can fill that. It may be that, that we feel like we need affirmation or the feeling that everyone likes us. Maybe what we run to for our security. Now think about this. I'm, I'm recognizing that not only fear, but, but emotions in general can give us a clue that there's an idol on our mantle. If you're feeling... You want what somebody else has. You're feeling covetous. 
might ask the question, what do I believe that God is holding back from me? That may be an idol. If you're feeling anxious or fearful, what do you feel like you're losing control of? What do you feel like is out of your control? If you're feeling lust or greed, let me ask the question, what do I want that thing to do for me? And that may be an idol. If we're feeling anger, we may ask the question, what am I trying to protect? And why is that what I'm fighting for? If we're feeling guilty, we might ask the question, what am I believing about who I need to pay back? And why do I believe that's not forgiven in Christ? If I'm feeling depressed or sad, what is it about life that's not giving me what I want? And why am I holding on to that? Emotions can give us clues into where our idols are. And what God wants to do in us is to remind us that he is the only one that meets all of our needs. And he's the only one that will fully satisfy. And that if he's delaying, there's a purpose in it. Because he's already proven himself. Psalm 23 reminds us that if the Lord is our shepherd, we can walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil. That's protection. Jesus experienced abandonment on the cross so that you and I don't have to. Those who are in Christ are forever embraced by a loving God who will not abandon his own. That's his promise. So, if we're fearful of God's abandonment, let's go to the cross. Remember that Jesus died to bring you near. Third, the people forget God's redemption. Listen to what they say in... um, The last part of verse 1, as for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, over and over, God has reminded them, I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. No one else could have caused all ten of the plagues that God sent on Egypt. No one else could make a pathway through the desert. No one else could part the Red Sea. The people recognize this right after the victory over Egypt. In Exodus 15, verse 11, they say this, who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness? awesome and glorious deeds, doing wonders. You stretched out your right hand and the earth swallowed them, meaning our enemies. These are not the feats of a powerful man or some powerful king. These are the feats that can only be accomplished by God. And the reality is that spiritually, if you are in Christ, that's a feat that only God could have done. God made us who were dead in our sins, dead, alive with Christ. He forgave us all our trespasses. He canceled our debts. He disarmed the rulers and authorities. He put demonic powers to open shame through the cross and resurrection of Jesus. He has accomplished true freedom for us in redemption. We are free to be lovers of God and lovers of others. Like he created us to be. We are free to love even our enemies because we were God's enemies and he still loved us. We are free to give ourselves to spirit-empowered good works that really do bring joy and peace to people around us. We are free to do that because Jesus has rescued us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom of his son. When we look back to Egypt for that kind of freedom, we are forgetting that it is, it is God who works in us. The power that raised Jesus from the dead is at work in you. Lastly, and, um, and I won't spend a whole lot of time on this, We see these people misusing God's gifts. Look at verses 2 through 4. Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, sons and daughters, bring them to me. 
They took off the rings in their ears, brought them to Aaron. He received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods. Now, remember, where do they get these? Where do they get the gold? Egypt. They plundered the Egyptians, like God said. This gold is grace. They didn't earn it. They didn't work for it. This is not a physical manifestation of their self-aggrandizement, of their self-promotion, of their ability to pick them up by their bootstraps. This is God's grace on them. That's all that is. And they're giving that gold to a golden calf. We, we looked last week at, 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 at Aholiab and Bezalel and all able men who God gave ability to. And now we see Aaron using that skill to fashion and to mold and to engrave to build an idol. Not to build a tabernacle, not to build an altar of incense, not to build a lampstand, to build an idol. Now, when I think about what it means for us to be obedient stewards as opposed to being possessive owners of our gifts, I can't help but think about you. I think about all the folks who are always giving rides to people, waking up at four in the morning, take somebody to work. I think about all those board games you've loaned to people and not complain when their hourglass doesn't come back like it's supposed to. I think about all those homes that have been rented or sold at a discount to other families in our church. I think about all those times in the last two months, say, that where the AC broke and you stayed with somebody else in their living room or in their bedroom while they slept on the couch. I've seen you do it. I've seen you give up your possessions. I've seen you use your skills for painting and plumbing parties. I've seen you use your skills to coordinate and repair for Sunday lunch. I've seen you use your skills to help other people in the congregation with, with budgeting and with relationships and with schooling and with parenting. I just want to call us to keep excelling still more. Keep excelling. That's what the kingdom looks like. Let's keep doing it with more joy because what did we have that we did not receive? If then you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? That's 1 Corinthians 4, 7. Grace reminds us that everything is grace, which means I'm free from possession. I can be a steward. Now, all of these Manners of idolatry, impatience with God's timing, fear of God's abandonment, forgetfulness of God's redemption, misuse of God's gifts, all lead to and result in a distortion of true worship of God. What we read is that the people have broken loose. Verse 25, we read that, which is the same word that in Proverbs 29, 18, is saying that the people have cast off restraint. Aaron has, instead of leading with conviction, bowed to peer pressure. And then when he's called out for it, he tries to excuse the sin away. Oh, I threw it in the fire and a, a calf jumped out. This is idolatry. This is distortion of the true worship of God. This is the image of idolatry. I want to quickly go through the cost of idolatry. Everyone say, idolatry has a cost. I'm going to run through some of these because what we're going to see is God's judgment. But I'm scurrying to get to God's redemption. You can summarize the cost of idolatry with these words. God lets his people go. Of course, this is the phrase that that Moses 
continually used with Pharaoh to demand the freedom of God's people. And now it is God, not Pharaoh, who lets the people go. He gives them up to their idolatry. We can see that in what God says in verse 7. And the Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. God is reminding the people that has been reminding people that he is the one who's brought them out of Egypt with a strong hand and outstretched arm. He has inaugurated feast days to remind them of his provision. And now he refers to his covenant people as your people whom you brought out, Moses. He's disowning his people. He's letting his people go to their idols. Listen again to what he says in verse 10. And therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. God is ready to let his people go from their covenant relationship with him. He's ready to start over with Moses, make him a new Abraham who he will make into a great nation. Now, Moses intercedes for the people and God relents. But we see that God is ready to let his people go from the covenant. We see God's letting go physically and metaphorically when Moses comes down the mountain. Look at verse 19. And as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, just like God's did. And he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. The breaking of the tablets is a powerful symbol of the natural result of the people's idolatry. The people are breaking God's covenant and they're breaking his commandments at the foot of the mountain. Now, Old Testament scholar Stephen Dempster compares this scene to a spouse committing adultery on the wedding night. He's making his way down the mountain to tell them about God's covenant relationship with them, how he wants to be, how he wants them to have manifest presence, his manifest presence with them always. And as he's going down the mountain, he hears the sound of crying, not victory, not defeat, but dancing to a celebration of a God who's not their own. The breaking of the tablets is a symbol of the breaking of the covenant. It's a grievous offense. God's letting his people go. Moses exercises judgment on the people. Verse 20, he took the calf that he had made, or that they had made, and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Now this picture reveals the harsh reality of the life of idolatry. Whatever your heart consumes will consume you. Let me say it again. Whatever your heart consumes will consume you. Is what Paul warns us of in Romans chapter 1. And speaking of those who exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling creatures, he writes in verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up, let them go, to a debased mind to do what they what ought not to be done. They were filled With all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetous, malice, they are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. When the people consume idols, they are ultimately filled with all manner of evil. And they're getting that picture physically by drinking the water of the ash of the burned golden calf. They are consumed by the very idols they worship. The people are made to drink their false god. As a reminder that false gods have no power over the true God. All idols will ultimately be smashed by the true God who will reign victoriously over every kind of evil. And we could go on and talk about the, the Levites 
slaying the 3,000. Talk about the plague in the last verse, verse 35. But I want to go ahead and move on to the solution to idolatry. What is the solution to idolatry? And we look in our hearts and we see that we're fickle. Where do we find the solution? Well, twice in our text, we see Moses making intercession for the people. The first time, which occurs in verses 11 through 13, Moses asks God to remember three things. One, he is the one who brought his people out of Egypt with great power and a mighty hand. He is the one, the only one, who could possibly bring down the forces of Egypt. Two, remember your glory among the nations. He says, Egypt is going to mock your glory if you destroy your people. They're going to mock your reputation. And third, Moses implores God to remember his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is incredible. Because Moses has the opportunity to be the patriarch. To have the descendants who will have the promise. And he says, nah, my legacy isn't as important as God's promise. My legacy isn't as important as God's covenant. And after this intercession, the Lord relents from the disaster that he has spoken of, of bringing on his people. And you may wonder how God can, it's not like God might be changing his mind. But the story of Jonah reminds me of this story. In the book of Jonah, you remember, God sends Jonah to go and tell the people of Nineveh to repent. He says, what's going to come on the people of Nineveh is destruction. That's what's promised. If you continue in your sin, that's what's coming. But Jonah eventually goes and preaches to the Ninevites. And what happens? They repent in sackcloth and ashes. And the wrath of God is taken away. In repentance, they find hope. In repentance, they find mercy. In repentance, they find grace. And here we see Moses doing his interceding on behalf of his people. And God showing mercy. His mercy is triumphing over his judgment. Moses' second intercession is in verse 30 through 34. I don't have time to go into it a whole lot, but I will say what we see in these verses is a need for a perfect mediator. What God says to Moses when he says, let me die, block me out of the book, God says, nah. He says, person who sins will die. See, Moses is not the perfect mediator. He can't stand for the people. He can't be blotted out for, for the sins of the people. In just a few chapters, at the waters of Meribah, he's going to strike the rock instead of speaking to it. He's got his own issues. He murdered an Egyptian. He can't stand righteously before God. So we hear crying out, Psalm 24, verse 1, Who may ascend to the hill of the Lord, and who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood, not sworn deceitfully, he will receive inheritance of the Lord. So who is the mediator who can blot out the sins of the people? Jesus. Jesus is the better Moses. Moses can't stand between God and the people forever. But Jesus can. In Hebrews chapter 7, we read these words that, for it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. Skipping down to 28. For the law appoints men in their weaknesses high priests. But the word of the oath 
which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. See, every high priest chosen from among men is beset with weakness, but Jesus is not. He's the perfect mediator, the perfect one who can stand between God and his people. Now I want to close with the hope that this leaves us with, which I want, I want, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 9. Nehemiah chapter 9, verse 16. Now, a lot of people in Scripture look back at this, at this incident with the golden calf of the people turning their hearts back to Egypt. And they say they forgot God, but Moses made intercession. But what I see in, in Nehemiah chapter 9 is, is the beautiful picture of God's redeeming grace. That his mercy is everlasting. Look at me in verse 16. The writer of Nehemiah is talking about how God has been leading his people through the wilderness, giving them water for their thirst and bread for their hunger. And in verse 16, he says, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive. Gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies. You and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day nor the pillar of cloud by night to lead them. Or to light for them the way by which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. There's hope for idolaters. Because God is a God who is slow to anger and merciful and compassionate. Who forgives us when we turn to him and say, God, I did it again. Who breaks the chains. Who fills us with joy. Gives us what will really fill us and satisfy our hearts. As we go to the Lord's table today, I want us to remember that we don't have to drink the water of a golden calf. Because in Christ we are filled with his sacrifice for us. His body that was broken for us. His blood that was poured out for us. We have hope and new life. Because Jesus is our perfect mediator who didn't stiffen his neck, but who submitted himself to the Father to give us hope to do the same. Why don't you bow your heads with me and let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for being a God who is kind and compassionate, who is just, who does not abandon us, whose timing is perfect, whose presence is sufficient who gives us family to remind us of your glory. You say in your word that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, which you prepare for those who trust in you, who love you. God, help us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the perfecter of our faith, so we might stand with you, holy and beloved, fleeing from idols and trusting in the one true God. We pray this in Jesus' name.